This is the Mage at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Professor Tessa Morris Suzuki, Professor of Japanese History in the School of Culture, History, and Language at the Australian National University. Professor Morris Suzuki is the author of many publications, including Indigenous Knowledge and the Mapping of the Northern Frontier Regions in Cartographic Japan, a History and Maps, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2016. Dr. Moore Suzuki, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's a pleasure. You've published widely on the Meiji period, looking at Japan from a more regional perspective and really decentering Japanese history. With that in mind, I was curious to hear your thoughts on how the Meiji period and the Meiji Restoration fits into Japanese history and what is some of the importance of the Meiji Restoration? Yeah, thank you. So I think that when we look at the history of the Meiji Restoration, very often it tends to be viewed from the center, as it were, from the perspectives of what's happening in Kyoto and Edo uh, or Tokyo um, and so on. And I think that if we change our focus and look at what's happening in the frontier areas around Japan, we can see some very interesting things about the major restoration that are not so visible when we're viewing events from the center. So to me, one of the things that becomes visible when you look at the Meiji Restoration from the frontier areas is that the conventional narrative of the relationship between the Meiji Restoration and Japan's expansion and colonial expansion, particularly, is not really correct. So we tend conventionally to think of Japan going through this great transformation of the major restoration in response particularly to challenges from the outside world, but also from what's happening within Japan. And initially, you have a Meiji state which is centralizing, westernizing, opening up to the world, industrializing, but not really an imperial state to begin with. And then once you get into maybe the 1880s, 1890s, then it really starts to become an imperial state. So that's the story that we tend to hear very often. But if we look at what's happening at the time of the major restoration from the perspective of the frontiers, I think it looks quite different uh, in various ways. First of all, we can see that actually Japan is in some ways experiencing or practicing what we might call a sort of proto-colonialism even before the Meiji Restoration happens. So in the Ryukyu Kingdom, you have the domain of Satsuma, which has exerted some control over the Ryukyu Kingdom from way back, long before the, the Meiji Restoration. And in Ezo, which will become Hokkaido, you can see that Japanese merchants have been practicing a kind of mercantile colonialism, particularly along the coasts of Ezo. And that from the 1850s, from 1855 particularly, the Tokugawa Bakufu, in response to the growing presence of the Russians in the north, puts Ezo under direct shogunal control and begins to exert more influence, particularly you know, efforts to kind of Japanize the Ainu in the north. Fairly half-hearted efforts, but still you know, having some influence. 
So already those things are happening before the Meiji Restoration. And then when the Meiji Restoration happens, there is quite a dramatic change in the situation of those frontier areas, uh, particularly Ezo and the Ryukyu Kingdom, but also some other frontier areas that I might talk about in a moment. So from the perspective of, of Ezo, some very interesting things happen. First of all, of course, we have to remember that Ezor is the last stronghold of the opponents of the Meiji Restoration. So we have the supporters of the shogunate fleeing to Ezor and putting up a fight, known as the Hakodate Wars sometimes, which actually goes on into um, 1869. And very interestingly, uh, very briefly, establishing a thing called the Ezor Republic, which just lasts for a few months, but it's a fascinating part of the story of the Meiji Restoration. I think another interesting thing that that story shows us, which again goes a little bit against the rather simpler narratives of the Meiji Restoration, is that the Meiji Restoration was not just a struggle between the westernizing forces of pro-Meiji forces and the kind of conservative, more closed country shogunal forces. Because the people who fought against the Meiji Restoration, who carried out this last stand against the Meiji Restoration in the southern part of Ezo, around, particularly around the city of Hakodate, were not anti-Westernization. They didn't want to return to a closed country. The leading figure in that struggle, Enomoto Takeaki had actually studied in the Netherlands. He was an expert on Western technology. He had a French advisor who he worked very closely with. So they were not anti-Westernizers, but they were anti the power of Satsuma and Choshu in the Meiji Restoration. And then, of course, they were defeated. And very interestingly, Enomoto Takeaki, who led that last stand against the Meiji Restoration, is one of the few opponents of the Restoration who then makes his peace with the Restoration forces and becomes actually a leading figure in the Meiji administration. Goes on to negotiate a very important treaty, the Treaty of St. Petersburg in 1875, that I might come back to. So those very interesting things are happening in the frontier. But then once that battle is over and the Meiji forces take control of Ezo, then very quickly you have this much greater, much more rapid incorporation of Ezo into Japan than you had had during the, the Tokugawa Bakufu. So again, you know, when you look at these events from the perspective of the frontier, what you see is that the Japan that we know today, when we talk about, you know, Japanese history, the Meiji Restoration in Japan. Ezo was only semi-Japan at the time of the Meiji Restoration, but very quickly becomes very firmly incorporated into Japan as a whole and gets renamed Hokkaido in 1869. And that has enormous consequences, of course, for the indigenous Aino people of Hokkaido, who then come under much more intensive Japanization policies and policies essentially of forced movement off their lands. They're really, you know, driven out of the more fertile areas where they had hunted and fished and 
grown small crops and moved into less fertile areas to open up space for the Japanese settlers. So from a, an Aina point of view, the Meiji Restoration is a huge event and an event with some pretty unfortunate consequences. mentioned the Azo Republic, which really falls through the cracks in some of these textbook narratives of the Meiji period. And, and we're talking about, you know, this being the sesquicentennial 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration. And of course, this coming year is the 150th anniversary of Hokkaido and the incorporation of Ezochi into the Japanese Empire. We could almost think of it as a sesquicentennial of the Ezo Republic as well. Yes, we could. And it seems to me quite interesting that, as far as I can tell, that hasn't been commemorated very much in Hokkaido. To some extent it has, but not nearly as much as the renaming of Hokkaido, which for some slightly curious reason they seem to be celebrating this year, although it is actually next year. It's, it was actually 1869 when the renaming took place. So the story about the relationship between Japan and its Asian neighbours, I think, is another really important and interesting one that sometimes gets a bit neglected in the story, both of, of the Tokugawa uh, shogunate and of the Meiji Restoration. But it's very interesting to look at what happens to the relationship between Japan and Korea at the moment of the Meiji Restoration, because, of course, that brings in another of the frontier areas of Japan, the island of Tsushima, which, of course, was the, the gateway to Korea, throughout uh, the Tokugawa Bakufu. When we talk about the Sakoko policy in the Tokugawa era, people often you know, point to the fact that there was trade through, through Deshima, through Nagasaki, therefore it wasn't really a closed country. We don't tend to think so much about the ongoing relationship that Japan had with Korea and the fact that the domain of Tsushima had hundreds of people posted in the very southern tip of the Korean peninsula in what was called the Japan House. And so there was ongoing trade there. And then when the Meiji Restoration happens, there is suddenly almost a crisis of, you know, how do we deal with this? Do we go on using Tsushima as our intermediaries to communicate with and trade with Korea? And ultimately, in a sense, intermediaries who provide a link through to China as well. Or does the Meiji government take over control? Does the central government take over control? And interestingly, in the early stages, the Meiji government really tried to work to some extent through Tsushima. They were very reliant on the experience and the knowledge that Tsushima, Han, Tsushima domain had in relations with Korea. Tsushima was one of the few places where there were a lot of officials who actually spoke Korean. So they used that knowledge and they used the Japan House, which was controlled by Tsushima, for their early negotiations. But then quite quickly, they start to feel that this is an unsatisfactory way of going about business and completely overturn the centuries-long relationship that had existed between Japan and Korea via Tsushima and impose a new set of rules, which the Koreans were very unhappy with right from the start. So in a sense, by doing that, the Meiji state actually gets off to a very poor relationship 
with the Korean kingdom, and that colours everything that happens in the relationship between Japan and Korea. From then on, one might almost say to the present day. And on that note, and and going back to what you were talking about before with proto-colonialism of Japan during the late Tokugawa period, I mean, one of these old debates is, is there a straight line between the Meiji Restoration of 1868 and Meiji period imperialism? particularly targeting Korea. What are your thoughts on this topic? Um, Yes, I think there are certainly a lot of important continuities. In relation to Korea, perhaps there are not quite so many continuities. But in relation to both Ezo or Hokkaido, as it becomes, and the Ryukyu Kingdom, those are really the places where Japan shifts from a kind of proto-mercantile colonialism to a state-run colonialism. And that shift is starting to happen in the late Tokugawa period and then happens very rapidly following the Meiji Restoration. And that then becomes the basis for later colonialism. And it's quite well known that many of the people who play a key role, for example, in colonial policy in Taiwan and Korea are people who had some experience of living in in Hokkaido, particularly people who trained at the agricultural college in Sapporo and so on. So the, the Ryukyu Kingdom part of the story is also a very important one, of course, because as we know, you know, the Ryukyu Kingdom was still officially an autonomous kingdom, although it, it paid tribute both to Satsuma and to China. And it's always interesting to remember that that Perry went to the Ryukyu Kingdom and imposed an agreement on them at the same time, or in fact before imposing an agreement on, on Japan proper. But then once it, I mean interestingly, because the Ryukyu Kingdom is subordinate to Satsuma. And Satsuma is the very first domain to hand over its powers to the Meiji state. That then leaves a question of you know, what's going to happen to the Ryukyu Kingdom. And so very quickly that becomes initially turned into Ryukyu domain and then fully incorporated into Japan as Okinawa Prefecture in 1879. mentioning some of the connections between Hokkaido and and kind of the imperialist penetration of Korea, I was struck to read that I think in the Kongha Treaty negotiations, Kuroda Kiyotaka, who of course was the the commissioner in charge of the Kaitokushi in in Hokkaido, who sent over as one of the negotiators, along with Inoue Kaoru, along with several hundred Marines, uh, all from Hokkaido to negotiate what was seemingly a, a peace treaty with Korea. Yes, it's very telling, isn't it? And I'm sure it's not. There was no coincidence there. They knew exactly what they were doing. And Hokkaido had been the place where Japan learnt a lot about Western colonialism. It learnt a lot, particularly about the way in which the United States had expanded and imposed rule on its native people. Um, And a lot of those ideas were taken up within the government of Hokkaido and were then applied to other colonies or semi-colonies as Korea was initially, but then 
fully-fledged colonies later, further down the track. I think there are a couple of other really interesting frontier areas to look at as well, maybe not as significant as the ones that we've talked about so far. But Karafto is very interesting because Karafto, Sakhalin, was semi-part of Japan at the time of the Meiji Restoration, in much the same way as Ezo was semi-part of Japan at that time. Japan had already signed the Treaty of Shimoda with Russia, which gave Russia and Japan joint control over Karafto. So it it reminds us that there are a whole bunch of areas to the north of Japan which are in this very ambivalent position, that they're they're semi-part of Japan, and yet, in practical terms, parts of Ezo and large parts of Karafto were really very little known to Japanese people. I mean, there are many areas where no Japanese people had ever been. Uh, There were indigenous people who were living very autonomous lives at the time of the, the Meiji Restoration. So, yeah, that's another kind of interesting peripheral area that I think complicates the story. The other very small but really fascinating one, of course, is Ogasawara, or the Bonin Islands, which were not officially part of Japan at the time of the Meiji Restoration, but became part of Japan very soon after. So at the time of the Meiji Restoration, Ogasawara, then known as the Bonin Islands, had a fascinating population of random migrants from Europe, uh, America, Hawaii, and other parts of the South Pacific, very small population, who had really been living a sort of autonomous, pretty anarchic life for several decades. And again, there's this big question once the restoration happens of what do we do with these people? The islands were claimed both by uh, Britain as well as by Japan. But because they were so far from anywhere and didn't have much in the way of resources. Both Britain and and America were persuaded quite quickly to give up their claims, so they did become a formal part of Japan relatively soon after the major restoration. But here again, you can see the restoration leading to a new expansion of Japanese territory. I noticed in the Perry records of the, you know, the, the records of the official Perry expedition to Japan, they talk about going to the Bonin Islands and encountering all of these residents who, who were known, you know, it's kind of shipwrecked sailors or people from, really from all over, including people from North America, Europe. But you mentioned that they, they get kind of handed over to Japan very quickly. Uh, so what happens to those so-called non, non-Japanese inhabitants of the islands after they're handed over to Japan? Yes, that's a fascinating story too. In terms of questions of nationality and citizenship, of course, Japan didn't have nationality laws at the time of the Meiji Restoration. In fact, it didn't have a nationality law until the uh, 1890s. So what do you do with these very non-Japanese people? Well, what they did in the end was just to enroll them in koseki, Japanese koseki, once they had the the koseki family registers, and to Japanize their names. So we have all these people with names like Webb, the English surname Webb being turned into Webu, upper part in Japanese, and uh, Savory, um, uh, Nathaniel Savory was a key figure in the Bornin's population, and they get turned into Sebori. And you still get those names in Ogasawara today. So there are still descendants of those early settlers, now very much intermingled with the Japanese population who started to 
migrate into the Bornean Islands in the 1880s and 1890s. And you mentioned as well, there's this, with the Meiji Restoration, and, and maybe a little bit before, but especially after 1868, there's this new kind of expansionary impulse. And the Japanese officials in particular turning their gaze outwards. What is it? I, I mean, we, we can, we, we've challenged that idea of the closed country of the Tokugawa period. And we've you know, identified all of these connections Japan has through the Ryukyu Islands or through Tsushima, as you were talking about before. But you know, for for a good two hundred and fifty years, there does seem to be at least maybe an inward focus that changes very suddenly after eighteen sixty eight to an outward focus and, a, and an outward expansion, as you were uh, saying. So, what's behind that sudden shift? That's a really interesting question. Recently, I've been looking a lot at maps, Japanese maps from the middle of the nineteenth century, and they're fascinating. They tell us, I think quite a bit about what was going on in Japanese society at that time. What you find if you look at mid-19th century Japanese maps is they're very varied. So some of them are extremely inaccurate and you get depictions even of Ezo, which, uh, you know, they just really depict the island as a sort of vague blob somewhere to the north. And you get other ones that are highly accurate because, in fact, the shogunate had commissioned quite careful surveys of the coastline of, of Ezol. But you also get changing cartographical practices that I think indicate a changing mindset in Japan. So some of those maps from shortly after Perry's arrival show an almost obsessive interest in borders and frontiers and flags and who owns what. There was one map I was looking at recently from not long, not at all long after the arrival of Perry, in which not only are there efforts to draw country borders, but all the islands around the world, but particularly around Japan, are marked with little stripes of different colour to try to identify, you know, this island belongs to Japan, this island belongs to Russia, this island belongs to China. And I think that what's happening there is that fairly suddenly, Japanese people are becoming conscious of the fact that sovereignty, you know, ownership over bits of territory is really important in terms of global power relationships. And it becomes very important to know who owns what. And then, of course, it becomes important to expand the area that's under Japanese sovereignty, where you can put the little marks to say, this is Japan. And so is it a response then to Western imperialism or is it more complicated than that? I think it's, yes, I think it is a response to Western imperialism, not only in the sense that it's a growing awareness of the power that empires have, but it's also just a different way of looking at the world. So we're moving away from that kind of China-centered version of the world or the, the vision of the world that Japan had inherited from China, where you see your own capital as the centre, and then the the nation doesn't really have sharply defined borders. It just extends outwards. The power of the shogun or the emperor becomes weaker and weaker as you go out towards uh, the periphery, and then it just sort of merges out into a terra incognita somewhere out there. So that, I think, was very much the mindset of most people in Japan until the late Tokugawa period. 
But then they're coming up against this very different vision of the world, which is most clearly set out on Western maps, where there are clear dividing lines between different countries and a very clear sense of each country having sovereignty over a clearly defined bit of territory. So Japan is trying to deal with that new way of looking at the world and trying to understand what it means for Japan, uh, for, for, for Japan itself in terms of its place in the world and its power in relation to the other great powers that they're encountering. When you look at uh, mid-19th century Japanese maps, the other thing that I found fascinating about them is how many of them from about the late 1850s and into the 60s and 70s have flags all around. And this was obviously something that was borrowed from Western models. You do find some Western maps that have you know, flags of the countries of the world. But so many of the Japanese maps from that period seem to have this arrangement of flags around them. And it's partly a design feature, I think. They just thought they looked really pretty. But it does also seem to be part of this kind of desperate urge to identify, you know, the sudden realisation there are all those countries out there where are they all and who are they all? So you get flags not only of individual countries, but also I think they're mostly the flags that Japanese people are set seeing on ships. So they include flags of trading companies and um, flags of navies as well as national flags. But this fascination with national flags, again, is I think part of that desperate urge to kind of understand a changing way of a different way of looking at the world. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.